one of the ongoing challenges for New Covenant Christians is knowing exactly what our relationship is to the Old Testament. There are not many church-going people, even church-going people of many, many years, who can answer succinctly what the role of the Old Testament is in the life of a New Covenant believer. What would you say? You can think about that. Quiz immediately following the service. Just kidding. More specifically, the Old Testament moral law. Is it binding upon us today? If so, why? If not, why not? And even more specifically than that, what about the Ten Commandments? That, most of the time in our minds, becomes a little bit more easy. Oh, the Ten Commandments, straight up for us today. No problem saying that. It gets a little bit more difficult if we say, what about all of the Old Testament law? It gets even more difficult if we take another step back and say, what about all of the Old Testament? Does that apply to us today the way that it did to Israel back in their day? Must we keep the law? If not, why not? And if not, then what place does the law, and specifically the Ten Commandments, have in our lives today? This morning, all I'm going to do is set the table for our summer series. This is the series title, This is the Love of God. I'm going to show you where I got that. It's going to be nearer to the end, but the series title for the summer is, This is the Love of God, Living and Loving the Ten Commandments. Okay? That's what we're going to set the table for today, and rather than just jumping in with the first commandment, I want to be able to set the table for you so that when you come to sit and eat and indulge in this great word, you have a category in which the Ten Commandments fit so that you don't just go jumping in and saying, yeah, this directly applies for me today because I'm going to mess up your minds here in a couple of minutes and I'm going to ask you if it does apply so directly to us, how come then, if I just read a couple more verses later, there's some verses that you're going to sit there and say, oh, that doesn't apply to us today. Well, then why does that? But this does not. Are we equipped to answer that question? I want to help you do that. So there are three truths that I want to share with you this morning, and this is going to situate us in the proper place of the Bible's great and glorious timeline. You know that I use the platform regularly to point from Genesis to Revelation, and I am often asking you, where are we in the story? You know that I remind you all the time the three most important things about interpreting the Bible. Context, context, context. You know where you are, and that helps you get you halfway to understanding what the passage is all about. So if this is Genesis and this is Revelation, we're going to be in Exodus for a little while. So Exodus is way back here. Meaning what? I know I'm out of the camera view and I'm driving Anthony crazy right now, but I'm going to come back in in just a second. So if I'm over here in Exodus and I now pass through the camera lens and come over to the other side, this is the new covenant now, here's the cross of Christ all the way down to Revelation. So what does the cross of Christ mean for the Old Testament as new covenant believers? I want to help you with that, help you understand that, because that's the most important thing that you'll take away from all of this. And you're going to hear me explain that for you in just one second. So we want to situate ourselves in the right place along the grand storyline that is the Bible, okay? So that we don't make a mess of some passages, because I know in a room of this size, some of your favorite life passages, and even the verses you've got on magnets on the refrigerator right now, are Old Testament, well-known Old Testament passages that, at the risk of stepping on some toes, have nothing to do with your actual place in life today, in the sense that it was written to you for you. 
It needs to be contextualized. Uh, I, I won't go after any of those, but we'll, we'll talk about that along the way, okay? So three truths that situate us in the proper place of the Bible's great and glorious timeline. Truth number one, the law is holy, righteous, and good, okay? So before we start bashing it and saying we don't have to obey it or it's not for us today, we need to understand what the Word says about the Word. The law is holy and righteous and good, okay? The law is good. One extreme position that we must avoid is that because we're New Covenant believers, the Old Testament no longer applies to us. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. I have, fairly regularly. I'm a New Covenant believer. The Old Covenant does not apply to me. Well, that's half right. Because I'm about to show you that Paul didn't think that that was exactly the case. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in just a second as well. It's not, I'm going to argue that it's not the case, and I'm going to ask you now to consider what it is that Paul teaches us in the New Covenant about the relationship of the New Covenant believer with the Old Covenant. You all with me so far? All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 says this. Context there is that Paul is recounting uh, Moses in the wilderness and the disobedience of the people of God. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that that situation with Moses and the wandering in the, in the uh, wilderness happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So do you see what Paul just did there? He's, he's in the first century looking back to Moses and saying that is for us today in the first century, but by projection, it also speaks to us in a particular way in the 21st century, upon those whom the ages has come. In other words, on the other side of the cross, we're in a different era, if you please. We are in a different place than Moses was. Why? Because the end of the ages had not yet come upon anybody on this side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, the new age has dawned. And I know new age is a bugaboo expression nowadays, but we, biblically speaking, are members of the new age. Not in some sort of Eastern mystical way, but in in a grounded Christ has risen from the dead and started the clock way, if you please. So the old, so for the new covenant believer, minimally the old and it's more the old covenant has examples for us to follow and avoid. It's one of the functions written for our instruction. Okay, later uh, uh, Paul writes in Romans. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So Paul says to New Covenant believers that what was written prior to him is written for our encouragement. And by our examination of the Scriptures, it'll provide us hope. So when times are dark... When times are confusing, one of the things that Paul says is, read the Old Testament. It's an amazing reality. Read the Old Testament. Read Exodus. And you want to talk about dark times, and yet God being the God of covenant, holding on to his people and bringing forth in the second greatest miracle in the Bible, the Exodus, out of wilderness wanderings, a disobedient 
stubborn, stiff-necked people. Thank God it was just them, right? Because it's not us anymore. Whew. So, therefore, we may straightforwardly, it seems to me, conclude that the law is good. The law, the Old Testament, as I'm using those terms here right now. And in fact, Paul says that in Romans 7, 12, Paul says that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He one-ups it near the end of his life in 1 Timothy 1, 8, when he says, now we know that the law is good. Just flat out that the law is good. But then there's a comma in 1 Timothy 1, 8, and it says, if one uses it lawfully, I'm so glad he put that expression in there. He didn't just simply say, we, know, we now know that the law is good. There's a caveat. We know that the law is good, assuming one uses it lawfully. Meaning what? This just makes my point that I just made a second ago. It means that we understand the law contextually. That's what he means when he says, if one uses it lawfully. There's a whole set of sermons right there in 1 Timothy 1, but I'm going to pass on right now. So I'm going to end this first point by asking you this question. Why do we obey the commands not to steal or murder? We're all agreed on that, right? I think we're all agreed on we should not steal and we should not murder. I don't think that that's fuzzy to anybody in the room. I hope it's not. And when we look at those, we'll understand a little bit more deeply what Jesus thought about them, and that it's just not simply the absence of not shooting somebody or sneaking into their garage at night and taking their lawnmower. Why do we obey the commands not to steal or murder, but we don't obey the commands not to eat pork or not to wear clothing with two different kinds of materials? Those are commands that are in the law of God, more or less alongside of one another. Everybody in the room says, don't steal. Everybody in the room says, don't murder. Nobody in the room is going to say, uh, I'm not eating pork anymore. Well, the Bible says so. Now, I'm, I'm making this point because the media and some of your friends and coworkers and antagonists toward Christianity are going to stick this right in your face. Oh, you who are going to argue against homosexuality because it's in the Bible... And then if you allow your eyes to go across the page, you shouldn't eat pork or wear polyester either. But I don't see anybody getting up in arms about that. So why are you cherry-picking this ancient book that's thousands of years old, written in this culture that's illiterate and has nothing to say to us in the 21st century? What are you going to say? Because there's probably not a person in this room who's right now not violating that don't mix clothing. What I'm wearing right now, this isn't 100% pure something. I'm standing in front of you violating a commandment in the Old Testament. Or am I? And if I'm not, why am I not? But if you follow the illogic of the world, then if I'm okay wearing polyester, then why can't I murder? See, good, good preaching kind of leaves you hanging with some things. I'm not going to answer those questions for you right now. You need to come back or stay tuned to know the answer to those. We're going to be dealing with those questions along the way this summer, God willing. Truth number two, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Truth number two is the law was never meant to save. Let's be real clear with that. 
The law was never meant to save. This is another error that we must avoid. And that error is the Old Testament is a covenant of works and the New Testament is a covenant of grace. Not uh Mm -mm. So we need to avoid that. The law was never meant to save. It's a simplistic, false dichotomy that fails to show how the Bible hangs together as one grand narrative. I argue regularly for the, for the continuity of the Bible. They're not, the covenants are not distinct and separated from one another. They flow together, and their focal point is Jesus Christ. As New Covenant believers, all the Bible has got to be read through the so-called Jesus lens. And we always ask ourselves, how has Jesus transformed this Old Covenant teaching? Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3 say this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery... You shall have no other gods before me. If you mark your Bibles, if you underline, highlight, circle, or anything like that, right in the margins, you might want to just scribble right here in this little margin that says, the gospel in, the, in an Old Testament nutshell. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. The gospel in an Old Testament nutshell. Pastor Mark, where in the world do you get that? I'm so glad you're asking me that question, because I'm going to show you right now. Watch how this works with me here now. I am, you shall. I'll say it again. I am, you shall. You see the order of those two verses? I am, you shall. It's not reversed. We see God and his character first and his actions, and then you shall. It's not reversed. Do this, and then God will show up. God has showed up, now do this. You hear this come out of this pulpit all the time. Horse and cart. You reverse these two things, you lose the entirety of the gospel. You then default to a covenant of works. I am, you shall. In other words, duty follows deliverance. Write that down. Duty follows deliverance. That's the theme in the Old Testament, and it's the theme in the New Testament. It's consistent. Continuity. It's the gospel in an Old Testament nutshell. I am the Lord your God. Now, here's the salvation. Understand now that the Exodus is the second greatest miracle in the Bible. Somebody tell me what the first one is. Thanks. The resurrection, okay? This is an antitype. This is, a, this is the biggest in all of the Old Testament, pointing to the grand deliverance of Jesus Christ when he, up from the grave, he arose. You with me? Isn't this good? Oh, this is so good. I am the Lord your God, okay? So I am, this is who I am, declaring his character. What is he going to do? He brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that's redemption in, in a verse. That's the God that we worship, the only God, and he is a God of redemption. 
If you took this verse and put it in the New Testament, it would simply say something like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of sin and death, out of bondage to sin. Paul's going to say that in Romans. What an appropriate text for whatever you make of Juneteenth and what is sweeping our land right now. This is, the, the exodus means so much to our African-American brothers and sisters. And for them to contemplate Juneteenth now being made a national and federal holiday, this is a, this is a passage upon which they reflect, understanding themselves being brought out from slavery. Juneteenth being the marker in Galveston, Texas, two years after Abraham Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. He actually wrote it in 1862. It was enforced on January 1st, 1863. June 19th, 1865 is when word finally made it to Galveston, Texas, and the remaining slaves who had not yet heard and been liberated now found out for the very first time. And it's passages like this when you read some of the old slave narratives. It's the, it's the wilderness wanderings. It's the deliverance out of that iron-smelting furnace called Egypt that God was with and brought his people out from. I am the one who delivered you. Therefore, have no other gods. The law was never meant to save. Both testaments are oozing with grace. God is, and he acts, and then he commands. You with me? Are you seeing how I'm getting this language of the Old Testament nutshell? I am, I have acted, now you obey. Not the other way around. You obey, and then I'll act. Grace abounds. The immediate, now what, so, so we now ask the question, what then is God's purpose for the law? We've already given you some answers to that. If it was not meant to save, what then? Okay, turn the page, verse 20. You heard Nader read that. Verse 20, Exodus 20. So this is 2020 vision right here, 2020. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why did God give them the Ten Commandments? To test them. To test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you would not sin. God gives you commands to keep you from sinning. That's one of the effects of the law. It reduces sin and evil. It doesn't convert anybody. But I want the law, wearing the blue uniforms on Staten Island, I want the law in place when, in my neighborhood, there's a guy driving around 75 miles an hour. I want him enforcing the law. It's not going to save that kid, but he's going to enforce the law and what? And reduce evil and reduce danger, reduce sin. That's one of the effects of the law. It's to restrain evil. We saw that in Romans 13. One of the functions of government is to punish wrongdoing. Why? So that evil doesn't turn into anarchy. You see how it works? You see how all this jibes together? I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Do not fear God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you so that you won't sin. God gives us good laws so that we won't sin. That's the immediate context. Check out the big picture. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. 
For this reason, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Hebrew, that's Hebrews 10.1. The law can never make perfect those who are drawing near for worship. So what's the, the, the begged question is, how, how do I get this then? If I can't get the perfection that God requires, and it's not by keeping rules, how? Doesn't Jesus look awesome right now? I mean, doesn't he? That's one of the functions of the law, to make you hunger and thirst and say, help! In Romans chapter 3, in verse 20, Paul says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. One of the functions of the law is so that you know what's right and wrong. You go zipping around Staten Island 75 miles an hour, and nobody tells you that that's wrong until somebody goes, woo, 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 and pulls you over and says, son, that's wrong. Here's a ticket. Like, oh, okay, I won't do that again. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 7, 7. I would not know what coveting was until the, I read the law that said, you shall not covet. It's one of the things that the law does. It reveals the moral will of God so that we know the way we ought to walk with God. This will please him. This will displease him. How are we supposed to know that? Unless he lays down the law. Just like good parents, good fathers do that. Daughter of mine, this is off limits. You do that, there are going to be consequences. Daughter of mine, there are no limits here. Go and have fun. My daughter, at certain stages of her life, said, ooh, I don't want to be restricted like that. Okay, live outside of those restrictions and watch what happens. I wouldn't know a thing about that because I always obeyed my mother. Ma, if you're listening, I'm sorry. In Galatians 2, 16, a person is not justified by works of the law. Here it comes now. But how? Through faith in Jesus Christ. A little bit later in Galatians 3.24, Galatians 3.24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So another function of the law is to give us guardrails. Guardian, guardianship, is to give us guardrails while we wait for Christ to come. In other words, to keep us from swerving way over here, to keep us from swerving way over here, God in his mercy has said, this is the way. You can roam around in these limits. You go over here, there's trouble. You go over here, there's going to be trouble. I give you a lot of room to roam, but you step outside those boundaries, there are going to be consequences. That's a merciful father. That's a loving father who gives us room to roam, but says, that's too far. It's one of the reasons why we need to hear this kind of preaching today, because there are no, there are no rules today. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the height of autonomy. You can't tell me there are limits to anything. And I don't think you need to be rocket scientists to realize that we are and will be living in the consequences of this for some time to come. In other words, the law reveals the holy character of God and the sinful character of man with, a, with one goal, 
to lead us to Christ. The ultimate goal of the law is to lead us to the ultimate law keeper. Truth number three. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law was never meant to save. Truth number three. As you've already heard me intimate, the law must be read and applied through Jesus. The law must be read and applied through Jesus. Jesus himself, I mean, how much firmer foundation can I get but to quote Jesus? Luke 24, 44, Jesus himself to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So in other words, what Jesus is saying is that all the old covenant points to me. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, that's the three major branches of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus said, they all whisper my name. So for New Covenant believers, if we're abstracting texts out of the Old Testament and not reading them through the Jesus lens, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to misinterpret texts. We have to work hard at understanding what it is, how it is that that these texts point to Jesus, and we'll take that up with every commandment that we read in the days to come, God willing. Jesus did not say it any more clearly than in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, when he wrote, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's an immediate answer to the question, does the law have nothing to do with us today? No, Jesus didn't abolish it. I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, listen, listen to the high view Jesus has of the Old Testament here. There's not a higher view of the Old Testament than on the lips of our Savior. 5.18, Matthew. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever Whoever does them, teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's why I'm teaching you these things right now. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That's one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount does. It makes you cry out for a Savior. My righteousness has to exceed the professional law keepers if I want to get in. The implication of those disciples around the feet of Jesus was like, no, I can't do that, so how am I going to get in? And Jesus goes, um, um, well, you might want to stick around for a few more chapters. What this fulfilling work of Jesus has accomplished on our behalf literally ought to take your breath away. One of the things that the fulfilling work of Jesus has done on our behalf is He's transcribed the law written on tablets of stone, and he's put them in our heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, 
is one of the great passages in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. It's the prophesying of a new covenant, of a time when one will come and you'll no longer have Ten Commandments plastered on a wall somewhere, carved in stone. This one's going to come and he's going to internalize it. New Covenant believers have the law written on their hearts. It's now inside. It's no longer an external guide. It is now internalized. That's one of the things that Jesus' fulfilling work has done. Another thing that that work has done, according to Romans 6.14, is that sin will no longer have dominion over us. We will no longer be enslaved to it, since you're no longer under law, but under grace. That's Romans 6.14. That's another thing that Jesus did in fulfilling the law for us. Internalized the moral law and removed us from the dominion of sin and placed us in the dominion, the sphere of grace. Romans chapter 8 is the proof of this. Let me read the first four verses for you, Romans 8, as we bear down to our conclusion here. Romans chapter 8, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Where? In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, Romans 8, in order that, I don't believe I get paid to do this, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Write that on your three-by-five card. Write that on your post-it note. Put it on your rearview mirror in the car. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Put it on the refrigerator. Put it anywhere you want. But the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in you in Christ. So when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't take out the Ten Commandments as a measuring tape to see how you're doing. His Son has fulfilled that, and in him, he sees us as having fulfilled the law. I will wait for the amens. The law for the Christian, has been fulfilled. I can't say it enough. I can't say it more differently, loudly, spittingly. In Christ, God sees us as law keepers, as the law being fulfilled because of what he has done for us. To what end? As we wind down here. To what end? I've given you three table-setting truths. The law is holy, righteous, and good. The law was never meant to save. The law must be read and applied through Jesus Christ. And now we ask, in closing, to what end? To what end? Very simply, we are now free to love and obey. We are now free to love and obey. That's the, that's the end game. 
John 14, verses 15 and 16 say this. Jesus speaking, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Oh, my gosh. This is gold. This is gold. If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, and by the way, you're going to need help. I'm going to send you the Holy Ghost. Glory. Laws fulfilled in you in Christ. You must obey it lovingly with a heart rewritten for his honor and for his glory. And you don't have to do it alone like you don't already have enough. I'm going to send you a helper who's going to indwell you, provoke you, and lead you in the way everlasting. John, later in his life, 1 John 5.3, and here's the sermon series title right here. 1 John 5.3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So, insofar as your attempt to earn your righteousness by rule keeping is a burden to you that's exhausting to you, step back. Step back, ask the Lord to examine you, quote him, 1 John 5.3, and say, this is not supposed to be burdensome. What am I doing wrong? And then go to Matthew 11 that says, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're grinding gears as a Christian, get before the Lord and say, I need that fresh air from Jesus. I need that helper to come and overwhelm me with God's goodness and the truth that the law has been fulfilled in me in Christ. So I'm free, radically free to love to the point of death and obey to the point of death. J.I. Packer, in his wonderful little book on keeping the Ten Commandments, says this. Among other things, the Ten Commandments now may be viewed, this is so helpful, among other things, the Ten Commandments may now be viewed as a gratitude program, a prescription for honoring, pleasing, and glorifying God, a highway to the holy joy of obedience. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Not the way to earn God's favor, not the way of works righteousness, a gratitude program. So when you hear me preach over you, God willing, in these weeks and months to come, when you hear me preaching the Ten Commandments over you, just keep reminding yourself, I have the honor to carry that out as a way of saying thank you to God. I'm not going to commit adultery so that I can say thank you to God. I'm not going to steal so I can say thank you to God. I'm going to honor my living mother so I can say thank you to God. And so next week, God willing, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Do you see what has happened here? God the Father has lovingly given us ten gracious words. God the Son has mercifully fulfilled their demands. God the Holy Spirit 
has transformingly applied this work to our lives. I doubt seriously anybody in this room has ever heard of Michael Cusack. Michael Cusack, you have? No, Michael Cusack, sorry, maybe he is, not the one I'm talking about. Michael Cusack's nickname is Moose. He died at the age of 64 last December. Most of us, all of us, don't know that Michael was a world-class swimmer and an early inspiration in the establishment of the Special Olympics. He died of the complications from Down syndrome. At his socially distanced wake and funeral, a Special Olympics tradition was followed. His family set up baskets of his more than 150 medals for family and friends to wear at the service in his memory. At the funeral, his sister said this, I looked out at everyone wearing his medals and I realized that the love he gave was the love that he received and how one person can make such a difference. I couldn't help but think this was exactly what I needed to close this sermon. Because going forward, one of the things you're going to hear from this pulpit is the simple truth that you can love because you've been loved. And the way we know that is that he's given us the Ten Commandments. This is the love of God. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now I mean that. Hallowed be your name. Remind us that we're standing on holy ground, just like Moses. Back up, Moses. That's holy ground. You're in our midst. We are standing on holy ground. Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done in the preaching of this series on earth as it is in heaven. We give you thanks for this day, our daily bread. We thank you, Father, for forgiving us that we might forgive others. Please, O oh God, please use the Ten Commandments to not lead us into temptation, but deliver us, each and every one of us, from evil. For we readily declare that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen.